Well, let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your goodness and your grace that we've been able to enjoy this morning in worship. What a joy to gather together as your people. Oh, Lord, what a joy to, uh, to be able to enjoy your presence and communion and fellowship with you. So this morning, as we spend a few minutes together in our first inquirers class, Lord, we ask for blessings upon our time, particularly that we might better understand uh, the vows uh, that we take for membership. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're going to have two sessions uh, for the inquirers class. The, the point being is just to give uh, everyone an idea, a better understanding of uh, what it is to become a member and what's happening. So today, we're going to re- go through the five membership vows uh, that you take uh, when you become a member. Um, here at Christ Church and in any church in the Presbyterian Church in America. And then next time we come together, we're going to go over and have a little bit of an explanation of what, what kind of church we are, more detail about our roots, um, where we come from, kind of makeup uh, of Christ Church. So the Inquirer's class is an informational uh, time. It's going to explain membership. Uh, it's a Hopefully a reminder, you know, as we look out around us to our neighbors, everyone, all of our neighbors uh, are invited and welcome to be our guests. Uh, we, we want to reach out at all times to those around us, sharing the gospel and the love of Christ and hoping that they will come. And then uh, moving beyond that, there's an aspect of, of uh, folks coming in to become members of the church, which we see as biblical, and I'm gonna—I'm actually writing something up so that you can read that in, in your own time. That will help us see the biblical aspect and call from the scriptures to membership in the church. Um, that is kind of the next step, moving folks into a better community. And membership comes by a credible profession of faith. So meeting with the elders of the church. And talking to them about uh, your love for Christ, what Christ has done in your life. Um, And then once uh, meeting with the elders, they receive a credible profession of faith. Uh, Then the only other thing is the taking of these five vows. Uh, Now you think about moving a little farther in. uh, Officers of the church, whether they be elders or deacons, our officers follow the... um, biblical criteria, qualifications that are laid out. The BCA, the Book of Church Order that we have, uh, uh, highlights uh, these things. And so we kind of follow here. Everyone's invited and welcome to come and worship and to be with us at all of our activities. We want to engage with all of our neighbors. And then to have membership in the church, one has to have a credible profession of faith and take the membership vows. And then those uh, whom the membership votes upon and chooses as elders and deacons, those men have to hold to, or they have to vow to believe in the scriptures and then the Westminster Confession of Faith, larger and shorter catechism. So there's kind of like a ramping up if you see that. Um, You don't necessarily have to hold to everything in the Westminster Standards just to become a member. Hopefully that makes clear um, some of the the distinctions that are there. So just a little bit to, to help us uh, get started. We'll have, uh, after this, this is, um, you know, we have uh, recordings that I can send you that we've done talking about Christ Church purpose, Christ Church mission, Christ Church vision, Christ Church values. That's all available. We're not going to go over that in our time together. 
um, I'm putting together some things that move forward, like new members type situations. So after someone becomes a member, resources that are going to go more into depth about what is it to be a Presbyterian? Why are we Presbyterian? Uh, what is the doctrines of grace? What does the scriptures teach when it comes to theology, et cetera, et cetera? Um, that's coming, but that's not what we're going to do now. We're just doing an introduction to understand today the vows, the five vows that we take. So moving to those vows, we're going to be, uh, even though we're going to be just touching on some stuff and hitting highlights, I'm using some materials put together by a pastor in the PCA. Um, pastor uh, Peter uh, Deitch is. Uh, his book, Living Stones, Why Church Membership Matters. And again, we're just going to touch on it. I'm, going to, I'm putting something together right now that's more in-depth. It'll be for new members uh, to be able to take advantage of. But we have these five vows, and we're just going to go through each one. So the first vow, do you acknowledge yourself to be sinners in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure and without hope save in his sovereign mercy? So we think of this vow, we pull it together, maybe a theme of that is God's sovereign mercy. And we see a few things at work here and are there on your handout. Uh, we see within this first vow an understanding uh, of what the scriptures teach about the covenant of works to begin. Um, the Bible tells us that through Adam, Adam was our covenant head uh, of humanity. Uh, through Adam, sin and death entered into the world and that happened when Adam sinned, uh, for when Adam sinned, he sinned for all of humanity. So in the covenant of works, and Genesis 2 records this, God gave his first created man, Adam. Uh, it was a pass or fail test. He had one law. We think about the moral law. There was one law, and the one law was, Adam, do not eat from that one tree. And that was all-encompassing God's moral law. Uh, now, that has expanded itself out, and we hold to the moral law and the Ten Commandments. is a good summary of that today and moving forward. But then, it was just one thing. Adam was told, don't eat of that tree. Trust me, your creator, your God, that's the law. You don't eat from that tree. And Adam, it was a, it was a pass or fail. And Adam stood as our covenant head of humanity. And whatever Adam did in this probational time, that's what was going to be the impact for all of humanity. If Adam sinned and failed, all of humanity sins in Adam. If Adam would have not sinned, then all of humanity would have not fallen into sin because of Adam, our first head. We read Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. That's what we, we hear in Romans. So then the covenant of works. We move on from there, though, to the covenant of grace. Uh, though Adam left humanity in a hopeless, damned position in a, in a newly fallen world, God stepped in. God didn't leave it that way. Uh, and we see there's, there's plenty of places we can go in the Scriptures. Ephesians chapter 1 is a great place that we can read and try to... Uh, God reveals to us a greater understanding of how the Father chose for himself a people and, and how the Son um, willingly came to die and redeem those people and how the Spirit is the one who applies that salvation. We see all that before the foundations of the world, but, but we look at the covenant of grace here. So let's go back to Romans chapter 5. Uh, verses 18-19 to give us a picture. 
help us understand. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. And what we see here is the covenant head, Adam, of humanity, but then we see the, the covenant head, Christ, of his church, of his his people here being described. This is why Jesus, the God-man, came. God the Son came in the incarnation. Uh, we read in Matthews chapter 1 and 2, the reason why he came, it says, he came to save his people from their sins. He's Emmanuel, God with us. The whole purpose was to save his people from their sins, to correct the situation. As Genesis chapter 3, we see right after the fall, as God is cursing all things, the gospel is immediately brought in there as we're given the first picture that God is going to correct this, fix this, and there's a prophecy of the coming Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is going to deal with sin. So all by birth are covenant children of Adam. And by grace through faith in Jesus, you are born again as a covenant child of God. So everyone is either a, a child of Adam or a child of Christ as it were. Those are our two covenant heads. So God's covenant grace. And so we go from the covenant of works to the covenant of grace to God's sovereign mercy. So back to Romans chapter 5, but we're going to read the verses prior to what we just read, starting in verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of, by that grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ. Jesus came, lived a perfect, sinless life, died on the cross for his people's sin, rose from the dead, ascended and reigns. Hopefully that's burned in our memories. I try to say it as often as possible for everyone listening, but for us and for myself, we repeat this because that is the truth. It's what God's revealed. Our hope is Jesus. And so it is good for us to recount these things and say them over and over again. So this, this first vow leaves us with a question to answer. And the first vow brings the question that Jesus asked. The first thing he asked as he came in, as he was preaching and proclaiming, same question we ask. Do you acknowledge your sin and repent of that sin? That's the first vow. Do you acknowledge your sin and repent of it? Now we come to vow two. Vow two. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners? And do you receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel? So look at this vow and summarize it with the term or the phrase true faith. True faith is what we're thinking about here. So we see the content of true faith. First, so there's going to be some three aspects here that we're going to talk about. First, we're going to talk about the content of true faith. And that's just the question, do you know the true Jesus revealed in the Bible? Do you know the true Jesus who's revealed in the Bible? I think a good way for us to see this is that uh, Jesus is, as was revealed, the prophet, the priest, the king. And he functions in those three offices. 
So Jesus' prophet is God speaking. Jesus' priest, that's forgiving his people of their sins. And Jesus' king rules over his people and over all of his creation. So we think about who is Jesus and how do we, who is this Jesus that we know about? And the reality is what is revealed in the scriptures. He is the God-man. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is the prophet, priest, and king. We see this work itself out in Romans chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. And I'm going to interject a few things as I read. But, but he, talking about Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So that's the prophet God speaking. After making purification for sins, speaking of this priestly work of atonement on the cross, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name as he inherited is more excellent than theirs. So we see that content of true faith. So it's a, it's a knowing, uh, that content, knowing who Jesus is. And we come to the ascent of true faith. So it's not enough to know what the Bible says about Jesus. There's lots of people who will say, okay, I've read the Bible. I see what the Bible says about Jesus. It claims that he is the God-man. It says he's the prophet, the priest, the king. It says he's the second person of the Trinity. Okay, I see all these things, but that's not enough. If that were so, then throughout all the different halls of academia, you'd have folks that study different things, and they'd just be a Christian because they, they'd say, hey, yeah, that's what the Bible says. But you have to assent to the, this truth. So there's an aspect of assenting to the true faith. So it's not enough to know what the Bible says about Jesus. You must also believe what the Bible says is true. But even that's not enough because even Satan and the demons believe what the Bible says, but they are not forgiven. Think about Matthew chapter 8. We're going to read verse 28 through 30 here. Give us that picture. And he having come to the other side, that's Jesus, to the country of the Gadarenes, two men being demon-possessed met him coming out of the tombs. They were very violent so that no one was strong enough to pass through that way. And behold, they cried out, saying, What do you have to do with you, Son of God? Did you come here to torment us before the time? Now there was a herd of many pigs feeding far away from them, and it goes on from there, and Jesus exercises these demons, casts them into the herd of pigs. But the point being, the demons knew who Jesus was. You go through the Gospels, there wasn't confusion. The demons weren't like, Who is this guy doing all this crazy stuff? They were like, Whoa, Son of God, what are you doing here? Is it time? They knew who he was, but yet they weren't forgiven in knowing the reality of who Jesus was. And that brings us to the trust of true faith, this aspect that is important. So you have to know what the Bible says about Jesus, who Jesus really is. Uh, you have to believe that that's true. Yes, that's what the Bible says. I believe that's true, I, that Jesus is who he is. But then there's this final aspect that one must have for faith, the trusting of true faith. You must know what the Bible says about Jesus. You must believe what the Bible says about Jesus. And you must trust in Jesus for forgiveness. We read in Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Romans 10, 9, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And when by God's grace you know, believe, and trust Jesus is Lord... This produces fruit in your life, testifying to the reality of the salvation that the Spirit has worked in you. And that's what brings us to James 2. We can see this in verse 14 to 18, what it looks like 
uh, in a Christian's life to produce the fruit of salvation. What good is it, we read in James, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of them says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So there's an aspect here that real faith is never earned by works, but real faith never lacks godly Christian works flowing out of it. That, keep that, we want to make sure we remember that. We don't earn our salvation, but once God saves you, there is no one the Lord saves, and there is no fruit of Christian godly deeds that glorify the Lord. That is part of uh, salvation. So this question, do you believe here in uh, vow two? Back to uh, Dietrich. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners? And do you receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel? In that question, you can see the three offices of Christ. One, as the Son of God who offers himself to you in the gospel, Jesus is the prophet who speaks truth. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me, as we read in John 14, 6. The second thing we see is the, the Savior of sinners. Jesus is the priest who became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him, as we read in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. And the third thing is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the king who said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, as we read in John 14, 15. So that brings us to our third vow that we take. And again, all these vows you're taking, they, they're taken before the session as a representative of the church, but the vows are taken before God. So let's keep that in mind as well as you're thinking through these vows. You take these vows to God, not to other believers as it were, even though they are a way you publicly profess your faith. So vow three, do you now resolve and promise and humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as becomes the followers of Christ? This vow we can think of as the grace of godliness, grace of godliness. The first thing we see is the power of godliness. We read in 2 Peter 1, 1 to 4, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in this world because of sinful desires. The Christian life and godliness go together, and it all comes from God's divine power working in you. So I mentioned earlier that uh, you have this aspect of uh, we don't earn salvation, but there is no salvation that doesn't produce fruit. But the wonderful thing is that the producing of that fruit is God at work within us. It is the power of God working in us that we enjoy that. Our sanctification, God calls us to pursue sanctification, to pursue growing in godliness, and we do that, and yet all the growth that happens is by the work of the Spirit in us. So we have this call, but we can only answer this call and, and run after it in the power of the Spirit. It's God who's working in us. 
Then we see this push for godliness, which I just mentioned. Uh, we, you go on and in our reading in 2 Peter chapter 1 here, the next verse and following. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he is cleansed from his former sins. God's power is working in Christians that they may pursue godliness, his glory, and the church's benefit. So, how's your resolve? Christians are justified by faith alone, but that faith is never alone, as I've mentioned several times. God works out fruit in the Christian's life. So we've seen the first three vows that we take. We, we're, again, we're just hitting highlights here, trying to understand what it is that, from the Scriptures that these vows are, are that you're going to be taking by God's grace. Vow four, do you promise to support the church in its worship and work to the best of your ability? You think of this as glorifying God in his body, glorifying God in his body. So there's a support here. Uh, a continual devotion, as it were, to the local church. Uh, we read in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the, need, the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, before we move on, I'm going to pause real quick because there's two rabbit trails. I want to, uh, we're not going to run down. We're just going to like step onto them to make a point. So we'll touch on it later in another time. But we see right here, Acts 2 and verses 42, 47, the gathering together of God's people there. Uh, there's, there's two particular things I want us to see. One, uh, the passage is pretty clear. What is it that God's doing? He's adding to the number. God isn't moving. The Spirit isn't saving people and then saying, go live a good Christ-honoring life by yourself. But he's adding them to the gathering of God's people. And they're bringing them in together, and then they're enjoying these means of grace, these marks uh, of aspects of the gathering, corporate worship of the body. And we see, which I'm going to write a little bit more on, uh, lying here clearly the context that's throughout the New Testament of church membership and how that is the reality in which Christians are brought. God saves, adopts, and brings folks into his family. He doesn't save them and adopt them and then say, hey, you take, just I hope you have a good life. It works out for you. He's bringing people together. And we see that. And then the second one, the little trail, we're not going to go down, but just step on as we see the ordinary means of grace here. We don't want to admit, admit, miss. But they're coming together and enjoying corporately is prayer, word, uh, sacrament. That's what uh, is happening amongst uh, the folks there. So this support, this continual uh, devotion. So in a sense, as we look at the, the third vow, as we go to Acts 2, and we could go to many other places, but one of the things that's important to see is that showing up, showing up is just the minimum. 
Some people think, wow, showing up, that's like, whoa. Uh, and I understand that. I mean, yes, so sometimes showing up can, can be feeling like the maximum, but it really is the minimum. Back to what Dietrich has uh, written about this vow. The early Christians in the first century sought to be constant and persevering in their devotion or commitment to the local body of believers, the church. We see that this included the entirety of their beings, their time, their efforts, their relationships, their belongings, their money, their sense of purpose, their worship, their fellowship, their study of God's word. Everything that they were and everything that they had, they were continually devoting themselves. And that's the community that God builds that is different than any other community or fellowship that there is or exists in the world. And that's the local body of Christ in the local church. That's the commitment. It's a commitment to Christ's body along with a commitment to the head, King Jesus, uh, that we're talking about here in this vow. So there's a commitment to worship, discipleship, and outreach, uh, doing these things for God's glory. Psalm 134 is a magnificent psalm. Um, I'm going to read it and, and see if you notice something. Come bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. There's a a dynamic happening here where God's people are at the temple and they cry out to the priests, telling them, praise God, worship God, do these things. And then it is the priests who in turn praise God and then lift up this offering of blessing and benediction to the people. So there's this, this interesting dynamic between God's people happening here with the priest and the uh, folks who've come to worship in Psalm 134. But all of it is focused on God's glory. Such a reminder uh, of our purpose. Purpose is to glorify God. The number one purpose of the church is God's worship and his glory. That's Without getting into our purpose, you can go listen to that, and uh, we can get a little more into it. But that's the purpose. But then we see one of the things that the church is uh, about um, ties into the mission, and that's making disciples. So we see for believers, there's the edification that's happening, making of disciples. Ephesians 4, 11 to 14. And speaking of Christ, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all obtain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Now listen, we have that now. God gave the gift of elders to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building of the body of Christ. Now hold on to that. Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Hopefully it doesn't sound weird. I I try to say this often so that we, we think about it during worship, but before we sing a song... Before I'll say something to the extent of, you know, as we get ready to all come together and praise God and worship, let us also minister to one another in this song. We read there in Colossians, there's an aspect that when we come together for corporate worship, that even in our, in our, specifically in our singing, as we sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, that we're ministering to one another. 
which is why we, we go about certain, uh, our philosophy when it comes to accompaniment, the way it works, that we want to sing, whereas the whole congregation is the choir, as it were, all of us constantly singing to one another that we might all not have an organ or not have a band or not have even a piano or a guitar that overwhelms the singing so that we would not be able to hear our brothers and sisters in Christ singing to us and ministering to us in song. And that we, hopefully all of us, even if we don't sing well, are singing because we're ministering to each other. And then we see... uh, also here, this, this, this gathering for the unbeliever's salvation, Matthew 28, 16, 20. Now, even, uh, now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So we talked there about the purpose. But the church also has, given by Christ himself, our King, a mission. And that mission is to be used by him in the saving and making of disciples, Christ, as he gathers them uh, together. So this vow is one that reminds us the importance of, of giving, giving of yourself, giving of your time, giving of your treasure, giving that you might be part of the body of Christ. Because there's gifts that God has given you, and he didn't give you these gifts because he wants you to hide them or to, to, to keep them. He gave you specific gifts. Some of those might be, we might, your gift might be spiritual encouragement, God doesn't want you just to sit back and encourage yourself. He wants you to be using that gift amongst the brethren here at Christ Church. I hope that makes sense. So the giving, the being involved in the community, uh, we're all giving to one another by God's grace and receiving at the same time. Our community grows in richness and depth as the Spirit is working amongst us as we all participate and be part of it as the family of God here at Christ Church. In our last vow, vow number five, do you submit yourself to the government and discipline of the church and promise to study its purity and peace? Kind of the theme of, of this vow is purity and peace that we can think about. Um, first, our destination and our pursuit. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 11 to 13. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to this promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. What is it we're doing while we're, we're waiting? We have this destination, the new heavens and the new earth. We're, we're going, but what is it? We've got our hand to the plow by God's grace, being faithful in our calling as disciples of Christ in the body of Christ, benefiting from the means of grace, being equipped by the elders, cared for our physical, temporal needs by the diaconate, all being knit together, different parts of the body of Christ, knit together for the glory of God and the benefit of the church. Now, there's something interesting here. It says to promise to study its purity and peace. Perhaps maybe in the moment some of you got really excited because that meant you're going to get to read a bunch and think about it. And maybe others thought, oh, no, study. 
me no likey. Well, this is an older English usage of study. Um, so that, yes, study means to open a book, crack a book, you know, read, learn these things. But also uh, what we have here coming from these, these vows we have that we've brought forward through the, the centuries in, in the church, Presbyterian church. Uh, this study, what its meaning here is to strive for, to work toward the purity and peace of the church. That you're taking a vow saying that you're going to submit yourself to the government and the discipline of the church has been established by Christ, and then you're going to promise to strive for and to work toward the purity and the peace of the church. And that's the studying that you're going to be doing. By God's grace, as a member uh, of Christ's church. So Christians are to strive for the purity and peace of the church until Jesus returns, or he brings them home in death. And then today's sermons, we looked at uh, the calling to godly meekness uh, heavily, would, would come to bear in that uh, pursuit of purity and peace. Uh, we begin with obedience and submission. We read in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. God uses the spirit-empowered labors of his elders and the faithful uh, spirit-empowered submission of his people to grow every person in the church in purity and peace. That was one of the things, as I was going through the calling and the or- licensure and the ordination process, many, 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 many times, uh, many times, there were other elders, older, mature, who said, prayerfully, John, are you sure that you we're being called. You feel the internal call. We're doing our part as the church for the external call. But are you sure you're ready for a life that you're going to one day stand before Christ and Jesus is going to say, how did you tend to my sheep? And then he's going to hold you as an elder accountable more so and say, how did you tend the sheep? And I'll just be honest, that scares me a lot. And so I ask that y'all would be gracious and how we function together in the body of Christ and pray for me. And as God brings us elders, pray for those elders as the Lord uses us as under shepherds, sheep among sheep, who will answer to our king how we cared for his bride. So we begin with obedience and submission. I thought it would be helpful instead of focusing perhaps maybe on the submission of members, but more importantly, the submission of elders to King Jesus. The fruit of discipline, Hebrews 12, 11, 14. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. I think a good way to think about the spiritual discipline is to think about uh, either academic or musical or physical discipline. If you want to learn an instrument, you're not, well, the vast majority of people don't just walk up, pick up an instrument for the first time, or sit down at an instrument for the first time, 
And everyone weeps at how wonderful they play. They have to work at it. They work at it. Uh, athletes, we see athletes perform these, these feats that blow our mind. But what we don't see is the thousands of hours that went before that as the athletes were training. If you lift weights, you go into the gym and, and you're lifting and you literally are ripping your muscles so that they then can build back stronger but that's painful. There, there, there's, there's, there's cost that comes to that. People who run uh, amaze me. But people who run, like, that is hard, suffering. But you've got to run and run and suffer to get able to run and run better. And then for studying, people who are pursuing academic things, wanting to learn, uh, there is sacrifice that comes there, challenges, hardships. And that's discipline. Spiritual disciplines are no different. yes. The moment God saves us, we are set aside as holy, immediately sanctified. But then he spends the rest of our life sanctifying us and making us more like Christ, preparing us for heaven. So we have these five vows. Let me read them again. And then I'm going to pray and then stay um, for an opportunity for anyone who wants to talk more or ask any questions about these vows themselves. Remember, as I read these, these are vows that... Um, you'll be taking for membership after meeting with uh, the elders of the church and having your credible profession of faith received. You take these vows to God, and then you'll take them before the congregation. And I'll just read them. Do you acknowledge yourself to be sinners in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure and without hope, save in his sovereign mercy? Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God and Savior of sinners, and do you receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel? Do you now resolve and promise in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as becomes the followers of Christ? Do you promise to support the church in its worship and work to the best of your ability? And do you submit yourself to the government and discipline of the church and promise to study its purity and peace? Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for the gift of salvation. We thank you for the gift of your church. Lord, we're thankful that you have worked all things out, are in control and rule over these things. We're thankful uh, for the blessing of the Presbyterian Church in America. It is not the only branch of your church, but we do rejoice uh, in her. We thank you for Christ Church Presbyterian. Uh, we look forward to the day that we are particularized and become an established uh, regular uh, congregation within the PCA, no longer a church plant, uh, Lord. But even there, we thank you that we're not the only local church let alone the only local church that's here in Knoxville. So we ask blessings upon your bride. We pray as we spend time together studying the vows that you would help us to better understand them, to see their rootedness in the scriptures, uh, and that we might all be able to take them and live them out by the power of your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.